From the late 1960s through the early 1990s, the United States saw an unprecedented surge in serial killing, rooted not just in the dynamic changes of the post-war period, but in the development of the human psyche going back many millennia to our ancient past. Wonder why serial killers exist, why they emerged, and why they exploded in the post-war United States? Check out the golden age of murder, a panoramic look at serial killing focusing on the United States in the post-war period with your hosts, Toby and Simeon. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, and Scene of the Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing a case that takes place in a town called Maplewood in 1966. But don't let the classic all-American-sounding name of that town fool you. Because as one 17-year-old girl found out as she walked home from her job at a diner, there was evil amongst the residents there. And her tragic murder, which remains unsolved to this day, would shock the residents of Maplewood. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Carol Ann Farina was born in 1949 to parents Anne and Frank Farina. She had a younger sister, Cynthia. The family made their home in Maplewood, New Jersey, 10 miles west of New York City. Maplewood is a small, family-friendly town that sounds like the kind of town you'd see in an old movie or TV show. Today, it has a population of 25,000 people, and it's long been the kind of town where people choose to live if they worked in nearby New York City. On November 3, 1966, 17-year-old Carolyn was finishing up her shift at Milt's Cup and Saucer, a small diner in Maplewood. Carol worked there after school during her senior year at nearby Columbia High. Carol's shift ended at 7.30 p.m. It was a cold night, but the walk would be a short one, about a half a mile or so. She walked less than two blocks down Maplewood Avenue, and then stopped at George's Luncheonette, 
another diner where she had worked before getting hired at Milt's. It was there that the owner and her former employer, George Malthus, chatted with Caroline and served her a soda. She was there from about 7.35 to just before 8 p.m., and everything seemed normal. Carol had a curfew to make. Her parents were overprotective, and her mother Anne would be expecting her. So Carol said goodbye and headed out the door into the cold night. It's possible that Carol stopped at George's because she was hoping to run into someone she knew that could give her a ride the rest of the way home. After all, it was dark and cold, so no one could blame her. Unfortunately, no one Carol knew that might be able to give her a ride was at George's. Her friend Barbara, who worked at George's, remembered Carol leaving at around 8 p.m. Carol stopped at the post office to put a utility bill in the drop box. Her boss, Milt, had asked her to mail it for him. She had worked for him at the Cup and Saucer for two years. After stopping at the post office to mail that letter, something awful happened to Carol. By 8.30 p.m., Ann Farina was worried about Carolyn. She should have been home by then. It was a half-mile walk, and she'd gotten off an hour before. It wasn't like Carol did not be home in time for curfew. At 8.45, Ann urged her husband, Frank, to go out and look for Carolyn because she knew something was wrong. Ann Farina had no idea how right her instincts were. Just 10 minutes earlier, 8.35 p.m., 10 blocks from the Farino home on Jefferson Avenue, a man named Vincent Vaccarella and his wife were heading out. As they walked to their car, they saw something that caught their eye. A coat was lying near the curb, and about 20 feet up the driveway, a young woman's body. They called police, and first responders raced to the scene. They tried to do CPR, but it was of no use. It was later determined that the young woman had been dead for close to 30 minutes by the time she was found and it was clear to them that she was the victim of foul play. The victim was soon identified as 17-year-old Carol Ann Farino. Carol was still in her waitressing uniform, but the buttons were undone. She wasn't wearing stockings or shoes. One stocking, which was hers, was tied tightly around her neck. Her girdle had been pulled down and was wrapped around one of her feet. Her underwear had been grabbed at and pulled and were very loose. It appeared to investigators that Carol had been sexually assaulted, or at least her killer had made an attempt at it, and her purse that she always carried was nowhere to be found. It was later determined that Carolyn died of strangulation. Police questioned Carol's friends and co-workers to see if anyone could provide any clues as to who might have harmed the 17-year-old. 16-year-old Gail Gallick recalled that just days earlier, she had seen a man try to convince Carolyn to get in his car, and she heard Carolyn say to him, Get lost. As the man drove away, he reportedly yelled out, Okay, I'll catch up to you some other time. Investigators continued to pour over the evidence and details, and due to the state of her clothing, authorities believe that Carol's murder may have been an accident. Their attacker had been trying to sexually assault her, and then panicked when he realized she was dead. Early on, investigators thought there may have been two people involved to be able to force her into a car. And according to those that knew Carolyn, she would have never gotten into a car with someone she didn't know. When no clear suspects emerged, some eyes turned to Carol's father. He was an Italian living in North Jersey. Some people theorized that there may be some kind of mob connections. This complicated the investigation and needlessly stressed the Frino family. And there was nothing to the theory. Carol's parents and most people that knew her fully cooperated with police and were not considered suspects. Given the location where Carolyn was attacked, a quick drive from the big city and minutes from a train station, the possibilities seemed endless. Carol's killer could have been anyone from anywhere. But there was a frightening possibility that the killer was living right there in Maplewood. While names of possible suspects were thrown around over the years, there were no arrests. One potential suspect, an accountant named Otto Neil Nilsson, was considered closely he had an office on Maplewood Avenue just across from Milt's, where he was known to eat. Investigators looked at him for the murders of 16-year-old Jeanette DePalma and 24-year-old Joan Kramer, two other high-profile North Jersey murder victims who had also been strangled. He was acquitted of Joan Kramer's murder. One year later, Nilsson was arrested after taking doctors hostage at a veterans hospital and barricading himself inside with a sniper rifle. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and subsequently committed to a hospital in New Jersey where he died in 1992. 
Carol's case went cold, and to many, it seemed like Maplewood authorities, both the police and the prosecutors, weren't taking the case seriously over the years, or were careless in their handling of it. No DNA testing has been done on any evidence that was collected, and a tape-recorded interview with Carol's sister Cynthia, which was done when she was 11, was lost. Cynthia, who was just 11 years old when her big sister was murdered, hasn't given up hope on solving the case. Now in her late 60s, she's seen a huge influx of interest in true crime, and that's not something that was around when she lost her only sister. And she hopes that it sparks a new interest in Carol's case. She still remembers timidly standing in the doorway of her parents' bedroom, trying to wake her father up that fateful night. After he headed out to search for Carol, she fell asleep on the couch waiting, and when she woke up, her world would never be the same. Joe Strupp of the Asbury Park Press has written a book about Carol's murder called A Long Walk Home, A Young Woman's Unsolved Murder, and Her Sister's Lifelong Search for Answers. Released in 2021, it details how the lives of Carol's family and friends were changed forever. Friends remember Carol's quiet, sweet, and kind. She had dreams of becoming a nurse someday. A fellow senior at Columbia High School, Bill Eisner, who was also a neighbor of Carol's, said, She was the best. She never heard anybody or had a mean thing to say. She was a good person. I sat down with both Carol's sister, Cynthia, and author Joe Strupp to discuss her tragic case and its aftermath. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Cindy, and welcome to The Murder of My Family. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. I wanted to mention that this is one of the older cases um, from my perspective, uh, from what I've covered uh, in the history of this show. And anytime that we have older cases like this, it's it means that a family has gone through a anguish for a long time. You were very young when your sister, Carol Ann, was murdered. Were the two of you close, and did you look up? to her as your older sister? Oh, yes. Um, Actually, we were very close. We were more like buddies, believe it or not, even though there was quite an age gap. Um, I I can't explain it. She would come home from dates, run up to my room and tell me all about it when she would get home. So we were more like buddies. I think it was because of my parents. They were pretty dysfunctional. So we kind of stuck to each other and protected each other. So we were very close. I don't even remember having a fight with her ever, actually. And yes, I did look up to her. Uh, I thought she was great. She was a kind person. She was beautiful. She had a great sense of humor. She was really funny. So we got along terrific. A lot of people look at me and say, okay, yeah, sure. But actually, I look at people and I, when they're not speaking to their sibling, I think, wow, you're really losing out. You should make an effort to uh, mend that situation. People just, I think, take things for granted. Yeah. And it's, you know, from the sounds of it, because I've talked to a lot of siblings that, that where there is a bit of an age difference, some of them look at them as you're, you're the younger kid sister kid brother or whatever you know i don't i'm not going to open up to you about what's going on in my life but it sounds like you two had a pretty open relationship and and we're close oh yeah definitely and can you tell us a little bit about caroline some of your memories of her um oh god one night she had a date and she was all dressed and ready to go and he didn't show up. It was a former boyfriend that reconnected with her from Valesburg. And we figured out that he probably didn't show up deliberately to get back at her because she had broken up with him. And she said to me, don't worry. Men are like buses. There's one every 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of her things that I thought was really funny. And I never forgot. She was just great. I can't remember specific incidents. I don't know. I just that one always stands out to me because most girls would be devastated and miserable and crying or whatever that the guy didn't show up. And she was like, oh, well, there's one every 10 minutes. They're like buses. Yeah, that's yeah. It sounds like she had a really good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. She tried to be independent, um, but my parents were stifling. <laughs> they were just ridiculous and 
the, as much as they wanted to protect us, look what happened anyway. Yeah. Parents who stifle their children. Um, you know, if it's, something's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's the way I look at things. You can't just smother people and expect them to be happy and well and safe all the time. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Did that create any kind of friction on her relationship with your parents? Oh, yeah. There was always friction. There was friction with with me, too, although I was younger, so I wasn't as much of a problem as she was. Well, they thought she was a problem. She did nothing wrong. She barely drank. She smoked cigarettes once in a while. Oh, my. I guess for 1966, that was a big deal, but I don't think so. Um she was really great. I mean, they really didn't have anything to worry about. I don't know what their problem was. Uh, yeah. She she never, like, came home late, or if she did, she called. She was really good about stuff like that. She never came home drunk or high. I mean, kids do all kinds of things now that my parents would probably have a stroke over. <laughs> um, she just was a good girl. She She was a great girl. She was very popular. She had a lot of dates a lot of guys that liked her and because she was very pretty and very personable and uh you know i guess they were worried about that i don't know <laughs> yeah well you and, and that sort of segues into what i wanted to ask you about because with her being friendly and outgoing and a pretty girl and all this stuff did that bring her any kind of unwanted attention or attention from people that kind of rubbed her the wrong way did she ever talk about any of that with you um, not really. Um, no, not really. I can't remember anything like that. I mean, she would, she wouldn't go out with certain people just because they liked her. Um, but she, she didn't have a lot of, uh, friction, I guess you would say with other people. There were, there weren't any problems that I can remember. The only thing I do remember when she worked at, uh, Milton's Luncheonette was, um, there was a guy that was coming in and he was very religious and he would talk to her every day about the Bible. And I remember her telling me that. And I said, Oh, that's interesting. That's funny actually. And she said, yeah, he's a nice guy though. And that's who we think did it. Uh-huh. The, the accountant. Yeah. And I remember her telling me about him and I said to her, well, how old is he? And she said, Oh, he's married. He's a nice man. And that was the end of that. And so did she not maybe not sense a threat from him? Just thought he was maybe a little too preachy or something along those lines. Um, I don't think she, this is my theory. My parents were not very supportive and my mother, I don't know whether she was envious of us, but she always made us feel not good enough or not pretty enough, or you should lose five pounds or it went on and on and on. And I think she did a lot of damage. And I think that when you do that to a girl, if they get any kind of praise or someone noticing them, they they kind of feed off that a little bit more. It's like setting a girl up to get into a bad situation, I think, because they're insecure about themselves. Um, I, I, I've been talking to a friend of mine a lot about this, that women probably will accept uh, praise and attention from someone who's really not their friend because they, they're so hungry for it. They don't realize that the guy's bad news probably. And I think that's what happened. Uh, and that's something that's, uh, I, I guess that's sort of through the history of, of dating or, or, you know, whatever that that kind of thing um, seems to still be prevalent and- now. Yeah, and she was always very well-mannered, which was drilled into us. You know, you have to smile and be friendly, and and that was a big thing. You know, you have to be respectful of adults, and, you know, sometimes you shouldn't be respectful of adults because they don't deserve it. But, you know, you you train kids that way, and they think if they're not uh, responding properly or whatever, it's not the right thing to do, and sometimes it is the right thing to do. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. And that, that makes perfect sense. Um, uh, shifting gears a little bit, just when this happened, fall of 1966, I, I imagine that getting that news had to be very difficult. And 
how as a child were you given that news and what kind of details were you given? Did they try and protect you so you weren't made aware of certain things? Well, after it happened, yes, but I found out everything on my own because I would listen. I would sneak upstairs and sit on the window seat and listen to everything that was going on <laughs> because I wanted to know. Um, the way I found out was um, the night that it happened, I had fallen asleep on the living room couch because we were waiting and my father was out looking for her. And I woke up because there was police all over the house. And one of them just sat down next to me and he said, I, I have to tell you, your sister was murdered tonight. And that was how I found out. Oh, wow. And yeah, my mom was sitting across from me in a chair by herself looking at the floor. I think she was in shock. Matter of fact, I know she was. And I just think I just closed right up. I didn't cry. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I just sat there. I couldn't even think. I couldn't even take it in. You know, I, I got breathless. I remember that because I always had asthma as a kid and that's how I found out. So it wasn't, <laughs> I guess there's no good way, but that wasn't a great way to find out either. Yeah. It's gotta be shocking for any person that, to find out a loved one. Overwhelmingly shocking, overwhelming. Like I was so overwhelmed and couldn't even like, I guess absorb it at that time. You know, yeah. it takes a while when, you know, someone goes, all of a sudden they're not there anymore. And it's hard when you're a kid to deal yeah. with that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Especially since you looked up to her and were close with her. You didn't have oh, that. Oh, we were very suddenly. close. Yeah. Yep. How did losing your sister affect the rest of your family, your parents? Uh, were they, you know, they, it sounds like they tried to keep her in some kind of cocoon and keep her safe but as you mentioned earlier you know if something's going to happen it's going to happen were they sort of devastated that despite their efforts that something like this happened to her yes oh yes absolutely and then of course then you get the blame game you know my mother blamed it on my father because he wasn't there to pick her up on time as usual because he was always tired because he worked nights and it was his fault, and it really wasn't his fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. Um, there were a lot of times she walked home by herself because it was 1966. People did that then. You know, it was not a big deal to walk home at night in the dark by yourself. Now, no one does that. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've learned. But by 1966, kids did that all the time. And it wasn't like it was late at night. It was like, I think she left the, the, uh, the diner about like 7, 7.15 or something like that. Mm. And, and that was in November, right after they changed the clocks back. So it was really dark already. And, and you sort of touched on a little bit. It, it was a different era back then. When this happened, mm -hmm. and, and maybe as a child, maybe you weren't really that aware of what was going on with the adults in, in the community. But was this sort of a shock? Do you remember the community sort of being changed by this or being, you know, oh, no, something like this happened here? Did you notice anything from your standpoint in the community? Yeah, I noticed a lot about that. They kind of tried to sweep it under the rug is what they tried to do. Um, because they, Maplewood, this doesn't happen in Maplewood. Did you not know that? <laughs> yeah, that's how it was. The The Maplewood news record, I think, had two small articles on her death, and that was it. Uh, and, I, of course, the Star-Ledger and every other newspaper were covering it like crazy for a while. And then, you know, it stopped. It wasn't like it is now, you know, Um that's another thing Joe and I would talk about. Like if she had this had happened now, it would have been all over the country repeatedly day in and day out. Like with Gabby Petito, remember that case? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the bad part about this. They didn't do that then. And there wasn't the communication. There wasn't computers and all that stuff then. So it was kind of localized. You know what I mean? It was like the East Coast maybe. Or yeah. just the Northeast. Yeah. And you were up in that North Jersey 
corridor. So I guess you had the, the right. New York big news there, but then you've got your small local right. news uh, who, who maybe right. doesn't want to cover it as much because, you know, they don't want people God knowing forbid. this happened in Maplewood. I mean, the town exactly. Maplewood just sounds like a made up uh, Americana apples, apple pie slice of uh, a, a town, basically. Um, oh, my God. That's exactly what they want. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I can want. just yeah. hearing that name, it, it that's what it brings to my mind. So, um, and of course, like we were Italian Americans, okay, and that was also not common in Maplewood at the time. Um, you know, we were in the minority, definitely, and of course, you had that. Oh well, you know, it has something to do with the mob, which is totally ridiculous. It had nothing mm-hmm. to do with anything like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was. Very, um, a very waspy community, I should say. Now it's totally done a 340 and it's totally opposite of what it was then. And, but they're still trying to cover up, uh, Maplewood's, um, you know, reputation because Joe and I had talked to the mayor recently about, um, setting up a memorial, a memorial park for her and donating it instead of my having to pay for it. And they don't want to have anything to do with it. It was huh. quite clear. They were shining us on. Let me put it that way. I don't know if you know that expression. <laughs> no, <laughs> that expression. Yeah. It, it basically sounds like they um, were sort of blowing you off, trying to do it maybe in a nice way, but thanks, but no thanks type thing. No, they weren't even nice about it really. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I was so. pretty shocked. I was shocked. I thought, Come on, guys. You know, they were talking about the event that happened at Buffalo mm. as opposed to what went on in their own town. And that's what I opened with when I spoke to them because they're doing it on Zoom still, their mm-hmm. meetings. And um, I said, well, I can't imagine why you're talking about Buffalo and you're not in, even interested in an event that happened in your own town. I can't understand this. Do you so, think there's a, a little bit of shame there or embarrassment that? Perhaps they've never I think they're embarrassed. I definitely do. Yeah, I think they're embarrassed. And I think they're always worried about their their property values too. <laughs> I yeah. think it's a big thing. Yeah. And that's you know, sad in a case like this, it shouldn't be the priority, it should be the, the person. Right. Yeah. You know. I so I wanted to ask, obviously, you, you were devastated by this. Your parents uh, were devastated, you detailed that. Um Years and years go by of not having answers, not seeing anyone held accountable. How, what was the long-term toll on on you and your parents as far as uh, losing her? Um, I got married way too young and moved out of the state as fast as I could to get away from it all. And um, my parents never got along, and this just exacerbated their bad relationship. So. They stayed married. My mother stayed married because she didn't drive. She she was pretty powerless in the in the marriage. She had she didn't drive. She couldn't get a job because she couldn't drive, and and that goes on and on and on. And they just stayed together. I don't know why people just stayed together then. <laughs> I guess. So I just got married. I was I just turned. It was four days after my twenty first birthday. I got married, and then we. Six months later, we moved to Kansas City. So I was really happy about getting out of New Jersey at that time. It sounds like you wanted a fresh, start, a fresh start, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to get away. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to get away from my parents, from Maplewood, from the whole thing, uh-huh. which I did. So, so that's how the- I dealt with that. Okay. And all these years later, you don't have an arrest. You don't have any convictions uh i'm curious how hopeful are you still at this point that the case will one day be solved we see stuff in the news all the time cases being solved 30 40 50 years later do you right, hold out right. some kind of hope that this might be yes, the I, outcome I, for your do. I do i i we've been trying to get the prosecutor's office to give us some information And they won't because they keep saying the case is open, which it's not. They haven't worked on it in probably over 20 years, let's be honest. 
And all I want them to do is to hand over her clothes that she was wearing that night so I can have it tested for DNA. And I even told them I would absorb the cost. I have no problem doing that. They won't do anything. They won't talk to me about the case. They won't let me see anything they have. It's very frustrating after all this time. Why not? What could it hurt now? Like, that's my point. They focused in on my dad right away. They they tried to pin it on him. And um, I think there's a lot of things in the in the files and the information there that they don't want to be seen by anyone. That's my take on it. I I don't know if Joe told you we have three podcasts and we had the second podcast for the two policemen that responded to her homicide that night. And they they were a wealth of information. They just validated everything I thought about the Maplewood police and what was going on at that time and what wasn't going on, I should say, at that time. So there's a lot of, um, you know, un, I guess uh, no stern, stones that have been completely turned over, a lot of things that are left to uh, still be diagnosed that aren't being diagnosed, I guess. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't see at this point, it's over 50 years, what the big deal is of letting somebody else look at the information and taking a crack at it. Or like I said, at least hand over the clothes so that we can have them diagnosed for, uh, you know, I'm sorry, what do they call that? I lost my train of thought here. Like DNA um, or something like that? Yeah, D- there's got to be DNA on her clothes. There has to be, unless they lost her clothes. And that's what I'm thinking, too, because they, the Maplewood, I think the police department was caught on fire, if I'm not mistaken, and they moved it to Springfield Avenue. So maybe they don't want me to know that they don't have anything anymore. I mean, who knows? It could be a zillion things. Further embarrassment on on their part, if that was the case. Yeah, they did a terrible job. I mean, they did absolutely nothing but, ha- and then they started hounding my father, like he, like he did it, and he he was not a nice guy. My father had a terrible temper, but he would have never done anything like that. He did love us in his way, in his smothering, nasty way. <laughs> um, he did, you know. Um, yeah. He would not, never it- have done something like that. Plus, the timeline doesn't work. Because I didn't realize um, until oh, 1974 when they had the article in the Star-Ledger again about her murder. And they actually did it down to the times. And my father couldn't have done it because I could have barely got, I had to go wake him up to go look for her. So he's just gotten out of the house and she probably was gone already. So I don't even see how they could have even thought he did something like that. It seems like um, an easy, I, easy scapegoat. An someone. easy target. Yeah, an easy yeah. target. Um, someone told me, they said, let's pin it on the drunk father. And my father didn't even drink. <laughs> he wasn't uh, in, he never drank. I don't even know where they got that from. Well, and the, uh, the police uh, detective that was in charge was a juvenile detective. He had no experience with homicides ever. And there's a big cover up. I think there's something going on because he, it's such a long story. You have to read the book, but this part I don't think is in the book because we found this out afterwards. I knew the police detective because he was having an affair with a friend of mine's mother. Oh, so there's an inner, inner connection there. Yeah. And I saw him all the time over their house. And um, I think he was privy to my arguments with my father through my girlfriend and how abusive my dad was. And that was just spurring him on, even without him investigating at all. He had formed an opinion, and that's exactly what I thought happened. And when I spoke to the police, they they validated that for me. So um, I think that was a lot of it. So you're, it, it sounds like you're hopeful that there's something there that might lead to the case being solved, but at the same time, yes. you're, you're frustrated because they're not really doing anything with it. Oh, they don't really, they, I filled out two forms that you're supposed to fall out to ask 
fill out to ask for evidence or anything that you want to see. And they completely ignored the the second one I filled out, never even responded. And the first one, I think they responded to, to Joe and it was ridiculous. They said, no, we're not showing you anything. The case is still open and it's not open. They're not working on the case. If I called up the police station right now and I, I'd say, I want to speak to the detective that's on the Carol Anferino case, they would probably say, what are you talking about? <laughs> but yet yeah. the prosecutor's office says it's an open case. That sounds like a way of just saying, leave us alone. That's an open case. We don't yeah. Have yeah. Say. Well, I'm kind of done with that. Um, through the years, I was hoping someone would take an interest way before this. Um, but then I had other things going on in my life that sidetracked me. But when Joe called me, I was right on board. I said, absolutely, I'll give you all the information you want. And, you know, that's how it all started again. Before we talk with Joe, it's it's been 56 years now. I'm mm-hmm. doing the math right. Yeah, 56 years. So obviously, you, you miss your entire relationship with your sister, everything that you missed out on. But what, you know, there's a ripple effect. It affects other people's lives when something yep. like this happens. What do you think changed in your life and what do you think you missed out on with your sister uh, that may have affected the rest of your life? Oh gosh, I would have been a totally different person. I tell Joe this all the time. Um, When you look at our childhood pictures, um, you'll see them in the book. I'm always smiling and uh, she has her arm around me or I have my arm around her or um. Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up. Oh, take your time. Take your time. <clears throat> My mother always used to say to me, you were so sweet. What happened to you? I'm like, really? What happened to me, Mom? Are you kidding me? I mean, come on. Um, it just affected everything. I mean, I got married way too young. I wanted to get away, so I did. I had terrible relationships on and off with men throughout my whole life. I'm sure that it's, it's because of that. Um, I, just, I never wanted to have children, and I still never did. I never did, and I'm not sorry I didn't. I think that was one of the things that was a huge decision to make because of that. And, um, you know, finally in my later years, like in my late 30s, everything turned around for me. I probably settled down a little bit and I met my my second husband who I was we were very close and we were married for over 20 years so you know that worked out so that was I'm very grateful for that but he just died two years ago pancreatic cancer so it's been hard yeah uh, it's it's one thing that's a common theme no matter what case I talk to talk about and what family I'm talking with their lives are forever changed when something like this happens. So I think it's, it's just got a far reaching effect when, when there's a murder like this, even if it's 50 something years ago. Right. Exactly. Well, Cindy, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story and opening up and helping us get to know your sister a little bit. And I hope somehow you do get answers. Thank you very much for having me. I so appreciate it. Hi, Joe. Thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure, and I, I, I know you're a wealth of information on this case. And for listeners, uh, we're going to put this in the show notes as well, but uh, you wrote a book called A Long Walk Home, A Young Woman's Unsolved Murder and Her Sister's Lifelong Search for Answers, which is clearly not a just a book on the X, Y, Z of the the crime, but it really centers on Cindy's efforts and her desire to see the case solved. Um, I'm, I'm curious, how did you first become interested in the case and what led you down the path to ultimately writing a book about it? Good question. Um, I've been a reporter for 30 years. I actually lived in Maplewood, New Jersey, where this all took place. Um, since 2000. When I first moved to Maplewood, there was a murder in the town. A woman named Christine Burns was killed in her home, and it occurred about four months after I moved there, and that was an unsolved case for three years. And I actually did an article on that case 
for New Jersey Monthly Magazine. It was eventually uh, solved in 2003 due to DNA evidence that was found at her home that was matched to another person. But when that story first broke, when she was first killed, the reports included the fact that hers was the only unsolved murder in Maplewood history, except for Carol Ann Farino, this high school girl who was killed in 1966. Her killing was never solved. And as the Christine Burns case was solved, and there's been murders since then, um, it's not a dangerous town, but it's had its share of killings in 20 years. Every time there was a murder before it was solved, they would mention Carol Ann Farina was this one unsolved case in town, which was interesting to me as a reporter and as a resident and as a parent. Uh, my daughter graduated from the same high school that Carol went to and that Cynthia went to, and my son is a senior there now. And um, they actually had a student murdered there last year. Um, a boy, a soccer player, was actually shot to death um, on a football field area. Um, they did catch his assailant, who's facing trial. But again, every time something happened, the case of Carol would come up, and it was always remembered as the only unsolved case. So I started looking into it as a reporter. Um, I actually was looking into another true crime story, but it got me interested in this case, and I started by getting the police reports, but that's all they would give me, is the uh, initial police reports of her body was found quickly. Um, she was killed on November 3rd, 1966. She was walking home from a job she had at a local diner, Milt's Cup and Saucer, and her home was about a half mile away, and she left the work location. She went to another location, another diner she used to work at, and was last seen leaving there about 7.30, and her body was later found about a half mile away, strangled on a driveway. Um, her clothes were, were undone, her girdle was down, and she had been strangled with her own stocking. And she was found less than an hour later. So you're talking about, about less than 45-minute time span between her last being seen and her body being found, which is, as you know, in... Uh, detective work and in murder mystery, that's a very small window. And for nothing to have come of it in terms of a suspect, arrest, anything, is very unusual. So that caught my interest. I started reviewing the few police reports they would give me, and that's when the stall uh, blockade from the police department started. They initially told me they had an inch-thick file on her case. That was the term that the captain used. And we actually set up a time for me to go and review the file, but just days before, I was told I wasn't going to be allowed to review it because the Essex County Prosecutor's Office um, had said no. And in New Jersey, we do not have district attorneys. We have what they call county prosecutors, which are the same thing. And they are appointed. They are not elected. And so in New Jersey, the county prosecutors have oversight of all, I believe it's all felony crimes. So a local police department will initially investigate, but the county prosecutor's office has its own uh, jurisdiction over them. And their view was, uh, it's an open case, we can't reveal any information. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the county prosecutor's office, and Cindy did as well. And they basically said, it's an open case, we can't release any information, and that's it. So no other information has come from them. But I did do my own detective work. I found Cindy, who has been a major help, that led me to other people who knew Carol, who were in her class. And I also went on Facebook. There's a couple of Facebook pages for South Orange and Maplewood, which were very helpful because I put out the word that we were looking for people who knew Carol or remember the crime, and a lot of people came forward. And then I came across some other cases that involve a person I believe in the book to be the likely killer, a man who was suspected in some other murders um, who has since passed away. And a lot of evidence came out showing, as Cynthia mentions, that the police focused on her father, who had a clear alibi. He was home at the time of her likely murder, went out looking for her. There was no evidence that he was involved with anything. He had never had a history of violence with the family in any way, and no previous um, um, legal problems. He was a, a, work, a working man. He was a delivery man for the Star Ledger newspaper, got up, went to work. Yeah, he had issues with his wife and, and his own problems, but never had any violent past or criminal past. And the police seemed to focus on him 
excessively, not only from Carol's or from Cynthia's memory, but also from friends and relatives who I spoke to. And then later on, as she mentioned, after the book came out, I started a podcast. There are three episodes at Anchor FM called uh, Long Walk Home. And in one of the episodes, I interviewed the two police officers who were the first on the scene, Tony Serrano and Ray McConnell. They actually reached out to me after they found the book and corroborated a lot of the information among them was that they felt the police department overly focused on Carol's father and Cynthia's father to the detriment of strangers who might have been involved. And all the evidence that I found points to them only focusing on family and friends, not on potential strangers. Even though she worked at night in a diner downtown, and downtown Maplewood, Maplewood Village, is right next to the train station. And at the time, from what I understood, a lot of, there was a lot more out-of-towners coming and going through Maplewood. They'd stop at these diners, and it very well could have been someone who followed her home or came to know her in the diner. Um, you know, pretty young girl. It was friendly because that's her job, and Carol was generally friendly anyway. Uh, could have attracted a lot of dangerous types, and apparently the police never even went down that road or tried to look at the possibility of it being a stranger. And a lot of uh, criminologists I spoke to um, and people who were um, well-versed in some of the serial killings that have occurred in New Jersey over the years say there are many possibilities that it could have been a serial killer of some sort or some stranger who might have happened upon her either that night or had been a regular in the diner she worked at and maybe uh, followed her home that one night. So there's a, you hit the nail on the head. There's a, a a train station nearby. It's it's a any number of people could come into that area and leave that area. Um, I want to touch on something you said about your your thirty year career of of reporting. Was it common in your reporting career to sort of run the roadblocks with police or sort of get shut down as far as getting your hands on materials related to different things you wanted to report on? Not usually. As you know, with the Freedom of Information Act and the Open Public Records Act, which is the New Jersey state version of it, um, they really have to give up a lot of, of information. And the Maplewood Police in their history, because I used to run a website called maplewoodian.com about Maplewood, they were usually pretty responsive on police reports. That's what made this so odd, that they wouldn't want to put forth anything. I think you know that a lot of times police will be willing to give you information because they want to solve the case too. If they can get the reporters out to help uh, and bring in some, some possible leads or information, that only makes them look good. So it's very strange in this case that the police and prosecutor's office would shut down uh, any efforts to get at the information, which also makes you wonder what, what do they have that they don't want people to know. If they have this inch-thick file, as they said, what is in there? Is there a memorandum or documents or notes that point to Carol and Cindy's father unfairly and improperly? It could be the case. And where are her clothes? Where is the DNA? And they, one thing the police did tell me, there's been no DNA testing of anything. And this is, you know, 2022. Um, now, they didn't have DNA testing in 1966, but they should have the clothes and, and other evidence, as Cindy said, and they could test that or at least come out and talk about it. No, they would rather just shut it down, close it out, and um, act like it didn't happen, which is sad, because that is unusual for, for police, in my experience, that they usually want to solve the crime, and they, they're glad to let reporters help unless there's some confidentiality with you know, minors and things like that that are understandable, but that's not the case here. Uh, and it, it, I, I would think that covering a 56-year-old case is, is going to be a challenge either way, but especially since you were sort of cut off from having full access to everything that would tell the full story. What were some of your challenges not having that in writing the book? I think the key is getting the police side of it, knowing exactly what they did, how much they have, how much they need to know. But on the other hand, there were a lot of other areas I was able to use. I was able to use people who knew her at the time and friends and relatives and a lot of, uh, a lot of clippings. Um, as, as Cynthia mentioned, the local paper, the News Record, which is still in existence and has yet to do anything on this case, even in us bringing it about again, even though other outlets have, including yours, thank you, 
Um, at the time, the news record did very little coverage. And, but, but there were a lot of other papers that did coverage. The Daily News had stories. The Star-Ledger had many stories. The Bergen Record, um, even the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote some stuff. So there was a lot of coverage out there, and I was able to get clippings through um, old clip services at newspapers.com, which is a great resource. So there was a lot there through the years following what was done. I also talked to some police uh, who had been on the case, former officers who were no longer with Maplewood, were willing to talk, um, a former chief detective, and information from families of the police chief at the time, who's no longer with us, who talked about how the chief at the time, um, Petto, had uh, really seen this as a kind of his, his uh, you know, unfinished business for years. His uh, son-in-law told me that he really looked at the case as one that he wanted to finish and, and, and solve and never could, and it really sort of grated on him for years. And other officers who'd been in the department who have left said, yeah, this was always um, very much the, the uh, unknown uh, case, not unknown case, but the case that really, uh, let, really got into a lot of, a lot of the officers' uh, uh, thoughts in terms of this is the one that got away because there really hasn't been another unsolved case. And so it was something the department knew about and, and was always on mind, but for some reason they didn't want to reach out and try to get it solved or at least reviewed more than it already was because I think there were some missteps at the time. I think they focused too much on her father. They didn't do a lot of good police work. And for whatever reason, they would rather hide under that and keep it secret than try to solve it. And more recently, as Cindy mentioned, we've gone to the township committee, which is the city council for Maplewood, and several times have tried to get them to not only urge that the case be reopened, but do some kind of memorial. And they've been not only uh, ignoring the request, but been rather uh, rude about it to Cynthia. But we're not going to we're not going to stop there. Um, uh-huh. But that is the status. Uh, and I do want to ask. Obviously, it sounds like there's some shortcomings in the investigation. Some uh, blinders on. Maybe they're going in one direction uh, where they shouldn't have been. Uh, or they should have been looking at other avenues as well. Was there anything, as far as you know, that were done right, things that might help solve the case one day? Um, what do you mean? I, I mean, as as far as, and again, maybe hard, it's maybe hard to answer without having access to, to everything, but do you know if the collecting of evidence, the things, the technology at the time, if that was done properly, I know it's not really there now. You, you want to see it now and have access to it now. But at the time, did they do the things right as far as collecting evidence from the scene and stuff, as far as you know? I don't know. The police, the two police officers who were the first to respond um, that we talked to in the in the podcast, they seemed to indicate initially they followed all the procedures. Um, again, in 1966, you didn't have probably the evidence collecting, especially things like DNA and others um, that they have today. They sounded like they rounded up all, you know, she was missing, I believe she was missing her shoes and one of her stockings. She was strangled with the other one. And her, she had a coat that was found a few feet away from her. And that, that apparently was collected with all her other clothes. Um, as far as the police officers told us, it was all gathered up correctly at the time and that there was a manhunt done in the area, and even to the next day, which we talk about in the book. But other than that, I don't know. Um, I know there was some recollections by friends and relatives that a lot of people were interviewed, mostly friends and relatives, but in large groups, which some of the uh, homicide detectives I talked to for the book said that's very unusual. You like to do things more one-on-one so that people don't feel intimidated, but they were interviewing people in groups. And I believe Cynthia mentioned that it's in the book. She was interviewed for several hours without an attorney or her parents present, uh, 11-year-old child, um, interviewed by police extensively. Um, that I wouldn't think is proper or uh, legally uh, correct. And they also got to the point, and this is in the book, where her family hired a private detective because they did not believe the police were doing a good job. And that they were focusing too much on the father unfairly and they thought a private detective would have to do. And he found some, some information, but apparently he wasn't um, the best detective either, but he was definitely, according to Cindy, um, a lot more um, dedicated to the case and and wanting to help than the police were. So I think there were some mistakes just from that um, uh, 
standpoint in terms of interviewing people and following up leads that they did it in these groups and in and focused only on certain types of folk, not anyone who might have been a stranger and it turns out was a likely killer. What else they did, I don't know, because they won't share the information. You can only assume um, what they did right or wrong, and maybe that's one of the reasons they don't want to reveal anything, because they might open themselves up to scrutiny or even legal challenges, which we are definitely considering. Sure. Uh, and one thing I do like about the book is that you do present a, su- a suspect in the case. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that suspect and what brought you to them and more details about them? Sure. Otto Neil Nilsson. He was a South Orange resident. South Orange is right next to Maplewood. Um, they actually share a school district um, and are considered two towns in many ways. They share a lot of other things. Um, but he lived in South Orange and he had an office. He was an accountant, I think, um, in Maplewood Village at the same time that Carol was murdered, 1966. So he worked in the neighborhood. And as Cynthia mentioned, Carol uh, often said a man came in who seemed to fit his description, both physically and and the way he acted, and would come in a lot. Um, He was a troubled uh, man. He had home domestic violence issues. He was a parent. And in 1972, he was actually charged with the murder of another woman um, who lived in South Orange, went on trial for that killing, uh, was acquitted, but there was a lot of evidence that pointed to him being the type of person who would do it, and the fact that he lived in, uh, or he worked in Maplewood, and basically blocks from where Carol was last seen, hold true to him being a likely suspect. He was also later arrested, and when he went to a Veterans uh, Administration building and started attacking people, he ended up in a mental uh, ward of a of the jail in Trenton and died there in 1992 after being divorced. So he was the one that we believe is most likely involved. Um, of course, he's no longer with us. I come up with some other potential serial killer folk, uh, men in, who were in New Jersey at the time, who's other possible suspects, but Otto seems to be the key one. He was also very involved in the uh, Our Lady of Sorrows Church in South Orange um, and mentioned, as, as uh, Cynthia mentioned, would tell, talk to Carol a lot about religious issues. He also taught Sunday school there. And uh, uh, oddly, that's uh, where Carol's um, funeral was held, um, in the same same church where he, he used to help out and, and teach Sunday school. So oh. there was uh, um, there's a lot of things that point to him as at least a likely suspect. And the police, some of the police we talked to who were not in the department anymore, said his name definitely came up, and they would definitely um, look for him as a possible suspect, but claim they couldn't find any evidence um, tied to him. Now, could you do that today with DNA if you try to test it or, or use some of the evidence you should still have? Um, I don't know. No one will come forth and say so. But he's mm-hmm. the likely suspect in our eyes, and, and a lot of evidence points to him as being the most probable person. Yeah, it's frustrating because if there is any evidence that could be tested today and maybe DNA, um, you know, is developed, they could use a profile and, and maybe rule out people, or if there's enough of it, maybe they can even do forensic genealogy and whether it leads to Otto or some other person, some random person that just came in on a train and left on the train, you know, maybe that could solve this case once and for all. So it's frustrating that they're not even looking at attempting anything like that. Yeah. And the other thing is that night, uh, there was a Thursday night, there was no school Thursday and Friday because the New Jersey Education Association, the state teachers union, had its annual convention. Um, they use they also they still do it to this day. Um, so students were off Thursday and Friday. So Thursday night was like a Friday or Saturday night to many of the students. And I talked to many of them who were out at parties. Uh, one girl had a party, um, and the next day police knocked on the door uh, asking questions because Carol's body was found just two blocks away, and others talked about gatherings outside uh, a, a popular ice cream parlor, Grunning's Ice Cream. Um, in fact, Carol's father went towards the uh, some of the students who were hanging out outside. Um, one of the students remembered him coming and looking for Carol and asking where if anybody had seen her, and they hadn't seen her. And there was also that same night in Maplewood Village at the Maplewood Theater, there was a big Democratic Party fundraiser 
Um, I believe it was probably because Election Day was, I think, the following Tuesday, probably. So a lot of people were in Maplewood Village that night, a lot more than there might have been on a Thursday, because of this big event and because there was no school the next day. So there could have been a reason for a lot of people to be in Maplewood Village who maybe wouldn't have been. And any one of them could have spotted Carol and and followed her or, or tried to tried to pick her up and abduct her, and eventually someone did, obviously. Yeah, and that's what's frustrating is that the the pool sort of gets bigger than if you factor something like that in, and DNA could help uh, maybe whittle that down to to the likely person that did it. Right, and the police clearly did not look at all possible suspects or evidence. From what we found, talking to people and talking to um, homicide experts and, and police veterans about how you go about a case like this, because she was out and about, she was working somewhere at night in a restaurant where a lot of people come and go and where she worked regularly. So people might've recognized her and known her and maybe wanted to make a move on her or whatever um, type of the case would be. And also to rule out her father, you know, I've talked to people who come across the book or, or who when were involved in helping me research it. But even as the book's out for sale, people in Maple and South Orange are interested in, Oh yeah, I remember that case. I always thought the father did it, or we always heard it was the father, and that's out there. I mean, that's a you know, that's a hard bell to unring. And if the police could come out and maybe clear him, even 55 years later, um, that goes a long way towards towards helping Cynthia and her family and and his reputation, and also pointing out that it wasn't him; it was someone else, and we need to find out who. So there are a lot of obviously pieces of this that can get resolved, but for some reason, the police and the prosecutor's office want uh, no part in it. They just would like these rumors and lies and uh, uncertainties to fester because for whatever reason, maybe politically, they don't want some mistakes that were made to come out or they want to keep it hidden or they want to make Maple look like a safe community, which is a safe community. This has nothing to do with that. Um, But it starts to look bad for them when people start to realize they can't trust the police to tell them what's what or to find closure in something. Um, And especially when you're talking about so many years ago, a police department that is, is, is completely different than it was today. So if someone wants to judge how the police handled the case, then it has no bearing on the police today. It's it's a whole different police department. And in fact, they could help the image of the department if they show that they are trying to solve this and get some justice out there and clear the air, especially when you do have things like DNA and other sources of investigation that you didn't have back then. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a really sad and fascinating case. And, you know, obviously we can just scratch the surface here in, in a, a single episode, but for listeners out there that want to read a well-researched and written book uh, about Kieran Farino's case, check out Joe Strupp's book, at Amazon. Is it any place besides Amazon? Or are there different? It's books? Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can also go to Words Bookstore in Maplewood. And you can go there online, wordsbookstore.com, and you can order it online. And they will contact me and I will come and sign it. And then okay. they'll send it out to you if you want. Very cool. Um, very so cool. It's, it's everywhere where books are sold, as they say. Okay. And also the um, podcast listeners will appreciate the fact that you do have the, the companion. Uh, podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast and what things people can expect to hear when they tune into that? Sure. Right now there are uh, three episodes. We're actually working on a fourth. I'm in touch with a victim's rights uh, expert, a forensic um, veteran who we're talking about doing something with her, but there are three episodes right there on Anchor FM. If you go to anchor.fm or you can just search in Google, a long walk home podcast. It'll come up, no charge. The first episode is a long interview with Cynthia about her involvement that goes along with what you've talked about, but, but, but also some other elements. Then there's the second episode with the two police officers who were on the scene. That really added in a lot of context and really confirmed a lot of things that were in the book. They came to me after reading the book and wanted to point out that they agreed with most of the concerns and issues and the failed work of the police department because they were there. And then the third one might be the most interesting. It is with a psychic criminal investigator, Maggie Remigio. She's a well-known medium who is used by police 
and um, attorneys and a lot of corporate entities that she takes cases and reviews them and has a real connection to the world of uh, psychic uh, intrigue and, and information. And she came to us through a friend of Cynthia's. She charged no money to us. She did it completely on her own because she felt she had gotten insight from Carol that really also supported a lot of things we found and brought out some new views of why this occurred, what occurred with Carol, what was like, and even her, her spirit as she saw it uh, really still um, not being put to rest. Um, now, there are a lot of psychic uh, claims out there that aren't real. I agree with that. But I did a lot of research on Maggie to the point where I talked to attorneys who've used her, who swear by her, and that she had some insight that was really interesting. So I think those three stories alone add to the book that I believe also tells a lot of important details. So I would urge you to listen to those and the book, and um, we'll go from there that hopefully there's more to come. And, and where can people listen to the podcast once again? It's at anchor.fm. Okay. Just and search Joe Strupp, or you can just search on Google. Um, a long walk home podcast and it'll come up. Well, definitely hope people check it out and check the book out. Uh, Joe, again, thank you so much for giving us all this detailed information and walking us through this case. It's very frustrating one. And I hope you make some headway in getting some answers. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. Just a quick heads up. I'll be taking a little time off over the 4th of July holiday to spend some time with the family and recharge my batteries. And instead of returning in two weeks with a new episode, I'll see you back here on July 16th, and I hope you all have a great holiday. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast called Morbidology, hosted by my friend Emily Thompson. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember... That every murder victim means something to somebody. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered, and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms.